What a privilege it is to worship with you this morning. Um, when we sing, right? This is, I don't know what I'm doing here. Wow, there's a lot of knobs. We'll figure that out in a little bit. There we go. When we sing, and I, I want to let you know what, what you've done for me this morning. Uh, y'all can sing, right? And, and as, as we came into and uh, you sang that song and phrase, it's, it's coming with volume. And the important thing is, theologically, you're not just singing to God. Our worship is not meant to only go to him. In Colossians, it says, when you gather together, speak hymns and spiritual songs to one another, which is why I love the way this room is shaped, because literally, you have this crowd over here yelling to that crowd, he is enough, in Christ alone we can stand, and you are yelling over here, you can, what you're going through, you can trust in Christ, and the affirmation that just this morning, I just needed that. And I just let myself for for a little bit during that song just be quiet and let you sing the truth into my life as we gather together to proclaim the goodness to our God, but we also proclaim the goodness of our God to one another. And in that way, we are not members in a crowd, but we are participants, and I am grateful for your truly, I don't just say that, I'm truly grateful for your ministry to me uh, this morning through that song and the others. Um, we got a lot of technology up here, which means a lot of things could go wrong. Um, we're heading towards Easter. My name's Ben, by the way. Welcome, all that stuff. We're heading towards Easter 2019. Now, some of you are like, Easter, oh my goodness, I haven't thought about that. What do I have to do? Some of you are seeing pictures of eggs and crying children because every Easter egg hunt inevitably ends in crying children. But you're thinking about Easter still seems far away. And I, I understand that. It still seems far away to me, too. But we as a faith community this year in particular are, are going to take this season to prepare ourselves for Easter. Easter is the greatest day. It is the most significant day in the Christian calendar. It is the greatest day in the life of the follower of Jesus. Why? Because Easter is the day that makes each other day an opportunity to choose joy over despair, love over hate, peace over fear. Easter is a significant, the most significant day. And this is a question a few of us have been asking is then how can we make much of Easter? A lot of times uh, Christmas has got some built-in nice rhythms to it and, and some, we got some nativity action and some, some parties that happen around there that we build and prepare for Christmas. How do we make much prepare for this time of Easter? And a few things we want to share with you. In these seven weeks, first of all, is this book Pastor Mike talked about. Uh, a few of us have written um, a, a number of different things in here for five days each week uh, to spend time with Christ. These readings are meant to be triggers. They're not meant to be full devotionals. And they're meant to be triggers as such like this, that we might journey with Christ to Easter. This is less about how can we get Jesus to apply to this area of my life? How do I get Jesus to apply to this area of my life? It's more about truly walking in the footsteps of Jesus as he received the cross and rose from the grave. To that end, each week is given to a different day of Passion Week. 
the final week of Christ. Today we focus on the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem, the Palm Sunday triumphal entry. And the readings this upcoming week will be all about that moment that happens in Scripture. What is it like? What would it be like to be there? What would it be like when hoof meets soil? What is it, what actually is going on? And so we spend our time in this book and then also in um, a sermon series coming along the side of that as well for each week. There's also, uh, I put down there times of prayer and reflection very simply, and this is not going to be big announcements or whatever. You want to make much of Easter and uh, spend time reflecting we're going to do something this upcoming Wednesday at 6.45. And i got no idea if anyone's going to show up. And if no one does, that's okay too. But simply coming into the sanctuary to spend an hour reflecting on Scripture and praying around the subject of Easter and allowing God to speak with us. A lot of what we'll be doing in this one hour is simply listening, allowing time of silence. And uh, my intention is, is to do that for every week leading up to Easter each Wednesday, 6.45, love to have you, uh, nothing fancy, just uh, enjoying taking seriously this season and what it means to us in our faith. Okay, I think that's it. Oh, yeah. Oh, so what we're talking about is the entrance into Jerusalem, and we're going to find out, we're going to be in Luke 19, we're going to find out that, that Jesus actually has an entrance song as he comes into Jerusalem. So I, I got on Google this week and found some different entrance music, some different songs that when certain people enter, you know something's going to happen. And see if you recognize any of these jingles. Jingles are words, right? I haven't used that word in a while. Jingle. Okay, Glenn, am I good? All right, see if you recognize this. This is for the more silent. Uh... You haven't seen the sun. Okay. That's uh, my bad. To everyone's great surprise. All right, here it comes. No, no, here it comes. Who's that? President of the United States. All right, start easy. How about this one? Darth Vader, best villain of all time. All right, this one. Football season, baby. You're like, oh, I got to get home with time. Oh, no, it's the wrong time. All right, how about this one? A little dated, but a classic. Jaws, nice work by you. That's right. I don't know if I've ever seen that. All right, here we go. This one I had never heard of. It is a trumpet, yes, and it's given for the entrance of royalty in England, which, um, I don't know, I think they can do better, I'm going to be honest. All right. Disney, what's about to come? Great Disney movie. This song plays way too often in my house. All right, another classic. That's right, Chicago Bulls. Here comes Michael Jordan. Still the best. Okay, 
All right, this one's a little harder. Those were the easy ones. This is about to come on. Anybody know? The voice. The four judges of the voice, always changing. All right, here's another one. This one's hard too. That didn't really Man, help, I'm did it? That was the entrance of the Kraken in Hotel Transylvania 3. <laughs> Again, I know these things. All right, and lastly, this is true. My buddy, they would have entrance music for when the pastor would come in the pulpit to preach. And, and I thought about, wow, what if we had that for Pastor Mark, his own entrance music? And so I'd like to volunteer this one as an idea. That. What do you think, huh? <laughs> That'll get them going. So here's the, the entrance that we see here. And we're together as a community looking and how do we enter towards Easter. And we're informed by this text, Luke 19, of how Jesus came and how Jesus approached Easter, giving us um, both a model and a celebration of how to go about this sacred Season. I'm going to read um, Luke 19, starting in 28. We'll go to the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray together. After Jesus had said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went ahead and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place of the road goes down, where it goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is he, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this intentional and beautiful season that we have to enter as a community. We pray as we approached Easter uh, that, that we might, by your grace, may make much of this season. And we do that in the midst of much else 
There's many things happening, many things beginning, and as the spring goes on, there's, it's going to be a lot of things happening in every single life. We ask you for space to simply walk with you towards this beautiful and sacred day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, three things I want to look at how we approach, how Jesus approached Easter. You'll see in most of your texts, if you've got those nice little heading things, it says Jesus approached Jerusalem as king. Jesus approached Jerusalem as king. And I want to look at three ways that Christ did that. First, he approached Jerusalem. He approached to come to Passion Week, to eventually ride to his own death as a warrior king. There had been 18 months that has happened since Jesus has been in Jerusalem. During that time, he has intentionally avoided knowing the next time he would go there, he would ride to his own death. He has been away from the city doing miracles and teachings throughout the countryside, has just come from the northern region, Judea to Samaria, eventually to Bethany, now riding in to this moment in Jerusalem. This is the moment everyone was waiting for, right? I'm, I'm, I'm an NBA guy. When we drafted Joel Embiid for the Sixers, it was like, yes, that's the moment. But it wasn't really the moment. We had to wait like eight years till his leg got better, which is a theme we do. But we, the real moment, right, is not on draft day. The real moment is when it happens, when he actually takes the court This is the moment that the Jewish people have been looking for, the coming of the Messiah. Yes, it was prophesied about his birth. Yes, that was a big deal. Yes, the miracles. But really, the real game time, the real time when the sandals would actually come down and walk into Jerusalem, that is the moment for which all this prophecy and expectation was given when Jesus finally would become king. Here we have Jesus entering with the praise of his people, and he does so as an act of war. He came and rode to become king. Indeed, Christ has come, and this march is an act of war. We see this earlier in Jesus' ministry, John 6. After After people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet. This is him who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Early in his ministry, Jesus is like, I'm not taking that on yet. I'm not, I'm not going to be that which you want me to be yet. I'm not going to accept this role as king in the way you are asking me to be it. And he withdrew and said, I'm not doing that at this time. Here we have in the text, notice what it said, the people put Jesus on the colt, the foal of a donkey. They, put people, they are doing this again, saying, now we want you to become king. And Jesus accepts this role. We see in, uh, here, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is prophecy back to Isaiah, where, is, where this title is given. It's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. The weird one's like mighty God. It doesn't sound very Jesus-y, right? It sounds maybe like God the Father. There's a prophecy about Jesus. What does that mean? This is a term, a prophecy in Isaiah used for God himself, but is now being applied to this coming king. This phrase has overtones of battle. Some translations could be warrior God. 
God is spoken of as Israel's warrior, the one who fights on their behalf, and the king, as prophesied by Isaiah, will come and do the same. And fulfilling another prophecy that we see in Zechariah about directly this moment, says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. The king is a warrior, and he comes to fight. You can't be victorious without challenging something. You can't be victorious without fighting something. You can't be victorious without defeating something. So as Jesus rides this in very specific moment when he comes to ride into Jerusalem to ultimately days later receive the cross and defeat death by the removal of the stone, what war is he waging? What is, what's going on? What is this king as he enters the gates of the city? What war is happening? Very important here, it's not who did Jesus battle against, but what did Jesus come to war against? We could say, well, isn't that probably Satan? Or isn't that like maybe it's just bad things of all time? Jesus came. What did he really come to come against? Was it the power of Rome? That's what the expectation a lot of his people would be. What did he come to war against? And the answer to that question almost always is the who. Who is fighting who? Who is fighting who? I really believe the better question is this. What did Jesus come to war against? And uh, simply, I would offer this thought theologically. Jesus came for war. He rode to battle. He rode to battle for his people and against the things that destroy them. He rode to battle for his people and against the things that would destroy, destroy them. He was approaching an eternal kingdom that would stand for all of history. After this is done, it is established for all time. This is not a kingdom that is cyclical. This is not a kingdom that's this empire than this empire. This is a kingdom for all time. He would change the course of history, draw his own blood, and ultimately be declared king forever. And we see this throughout images uh, in, of the New Testament. So how does he engage in battle? What is he warring against? Here's a, a few things we can see in this Passion Week that's going to happen. First of all, Jesus makes war against expectations of power and prosperity. People are coming in and they are excited. Jesus here, this is like a really big worship scene. They're so pumped that he's coming in and, and they're with the expectation that finally Jerusalem becomes the center of the world. Power spreads that. Rome gets out of the way. Jesus becomes the political, military leader we want him to be and we rise to power and prosperity with him. Right as he's riding into the city, he gives a prophecy Jesus prophesies, and it's about what's about to happen in Jerusalem. And he looks forward and says, what's about to happen is not this, what you imagine it. What's actually going to happen is the temple's going to be so destroyed, not even one stone of the temple's going to be on itself. A lot of you all are going to get wiped out. What's about to happen is a lot different than you imagine is about to happen he confronts the expectations of power and prosperity. Also confronts spiritual religious abuse. In Mark 11, uh, he drives out the people in the temple. This is on Tuesday of Passion Week. 
driving out in the temple because they were making it about their personal benefit, taking advantage of people in order, in the name of God, using a house that was given to the worship of God and using it for their own gain, makes war against spiritual and religious abuse, makes war against pride. John 13, this is on Thursday of Passion Week, Jesus takes the role of a servant, puts on a towel, goes to his disciples, and the disciples are like, no way, no no, this is not the kind of king we want. This is not the kind of kingdom you will wash and feed stuff. That's not what we're looking for. And Jesus declared to them, unless, unless you get this, you don't understand what this whole thing is all about. Unless I wash you, you will have no part in me, he says. This kingdom is operating differently in this place. It's not run by pride it is something that this kingdom wars against self-sufficiency. Jesus, in the midst of uh, being tried and everything, he's got Peter, right? And Peter has just told him, dude, Jesus, I get it. You think everyone on the battlefield is going to run away. And whenever you're talking about, I don't know what you're talking about this, but you're saying everyone's going to betray you. But if everyone betrays you, you have no one left in your arsenal, no troops left to call up. Now, I will be by your side. I will go with you. And you see the crow, rooster crows three times and uh, in declaration of Peter's self-sufficiency crumbling. And Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. It's just like, that's not what this new kingdom's all about. This is not where we're going. This is not, that is not what is happening in my kingdom. It is not about self-sufficiency. And lastly, and most significantly, Jesus rode to war for his people and against the separation that was caused by their sin. Sin that existed way before him. Sin that existed all around him. Sin that existed all the way up till now and through tomorrow and the next. All of the sin, it says, Jesus embodied. Second Corinthians 5 says, he who knew no sin became sin. Christ actually became sin. He became the enemy he was destroying. And so that bleeding victim must be killed. That's why this Easter and the story is not just cute, right? It's not just this nice story of Jesus riding cross. Well, this, what's happening here is blood. What's happening here is war. Jesus taking it so seriously that he rides ultimately to defeat the sin that separates his people. And in that way, he plunges the knife into his own breast. And the message of Easter is that hate didn't win. Sin didn't win. Prejudice didn't win. Addiction, generational strongholds, sin that existed way before him, amongst him and way after him, and the sin of tomorrow didn't win. The message of Easter is that Jesus declared victory, rose again, and said, for all time, love wins. Warrior. He came as a warrior king. Secondly, so that's how he came into the city, as this king, to declare war. But, but how did he do it? How, how exactly did he put this together? And this, I'm going to put this title, Foolish King, which feels odd to say and probably odd to hear um, how did he enter to conduct this cosmic changing war in this final week as he approached Easter? In some ways, he entered as a fool. 
This is from the New Testament where it says, the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us it is the very power of God. It says God uses foolishness to shame those who believe they are worldly strong. I would argue that the way Jesus entered Jerusalem in this way was intentionally as a fool in the world's eyes. Um, I, a lot of ways to understand theology. Um, my personal way is uh, through Disney right now in my life, just in that season. And uh, there's no better Disney character that has ever existed in my mind than the genie in Aladdin. And so there's this scene early on where Aladdin just wants to be bigger stuff than he is and wants to impress uh, Jasmine. And so he, no, I don't know the story back and forth. But anyway, he goes and he finds this little lamp thing and the genie, the blue genie pops out and sings a song, all those things. You've got these wishes, go back and forth. And eventually, Aladdin makes his first wish. He wants to become a prince. Well, what's it take to be a prince? What's it take to be a prince? And the Aladdin immediately takes his blue finger and turns like him into this cool little prince outfit. And he's like, all right, that's good. And he says, now, what do we need to do? And the genie says, mode of transportation. That's what I'm thinking. And he takes the monkey. What's the monkey's name? Really? I am the only one who watches these movies. No, you're right, Abu, right? Takes the monkey and says, I need to change him into something worthy of this prince. And first he says, a camel, ride to the streets of Agrabah on your brand new camel. And then he says these words, the genie does. He says, not enough. Then he says, how about a stallion with super weird curly hair? He says, not enough. Then he actually changes Abu into like a whole bunch of different animals until finally finding a beast worthy of an entrance and Abu the monkey turns into a giant elephant and then the parade and the singing and the sword throwing and etc. that happened to announce finally this was enough to demonstrate how great the prince had become. Very interesting mode of transportation Jesus chooses here, right? The only miracle in this text is that Jesus, from outside of this place, says, there's a cult of a donkey, and I want you to go get it. And they're going to ask you, dude, why are you stealing my donkey? And you're going to say, the Lord needs it, right? And you know those people are like, the Lord needs it? Yep. So somehow, miraculously, Christ knew that it would all work out. He came. So the only, only thing that's miraculous about this text is the getting of this donkey, the donkey we see is a full of a donkey. Most donkeys could not handle the load of a full-grown man, which Jesus is. This is maybe a teenage donkey, uh, some sort of teenage donkey. It's the first time this thing has ever been ridden, right? And, and all of this is happening. This is the first time he, that donkey is like all his other buddies don't have to have anyone ride him. This is the first time he's had to deal with it, and they're going to Jerusalem. This scene is... It's, Pathetic in a lot of ways. They're entering through the east gate, and if you follow the journey, it's zigzagging path all the way there. It's not like the disciples got some permit to shut down all trade through the east gate because we have the king of Jerusalem coming. Rome will go with this. I know they will. No, it's this sense of that there's other things happening here. There's other faster modes of travel going right by this ragtag group of people with branches and weird, untrained, skittish donkey that probably doesn't respond well to worship songs that's being sung over him. 
this is intentional. Then the second part of Zechariah says that the coming of the king would be lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim, oh, that word, chariots, remember that, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. The number one uh, weapon of warfare Horses and chariots, war horses and chariots. Israel has been forbidden for them throughout the Old Testament. This is not a new concept. King David and King Solomon, Jesus and all the other prophets, kings, never seen riding a horse, never seen with a chariot. They are always described riding donkeys. In fact, the psalmist would say in Psalm 20, some trust in horses. Some trust in Herod chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Intentionally, he made his people play the part of the fool. I want you to march to battle on these really untough, weird-looking donkeys and then trust that what I am is enough. I'm overcome. This, this part was the biggest to me, like realizing the significance of this moment of entering Jerusalem and asking the question of how did he come? How did he come? And these are the best words that I found. Jesus rode to Easter, rode to this cosmic, earth-shattering way. He came to Easter intentionally unprotected. Intentional. This is all prophesied beforehand. This is decided beforehand. This is one of the only miracles we see in Passion Week is the selection of the teenage donkey. That's one of the only miracles we see in the entire week. So this is coming. This is so intentional that it's sculpted this way, but it's so unprotected. There's no warriors. There's no, no, no weapons. There's no miracles or like pyrotechnics. He's shooting out his fingers. There's, there's nothing but a, but a guy on a skittish donkey and some people waving branches and putting their cloaks down. There's no fortification for showing he was powerful. No protecting himself from harm. No building up intimidation to create fear. No posturing. No protecting. Why? You think, well, because Jesus, they're not really into big parties. Well, the book of Revelation has some really awesome parties. Like, you want to talk about ceremonies, Jesus can do it right, right? And, and the images of the exalted Christ is, is mind-blowing and incredible if you read Revelations. So why here? So foolish. I really believe this. The reason why Jesus didn't enter with all that stuff is because he didn't need to. All that was needed to win the war was on the skittish donkey. All that was needed to change everything was Christ himself. And to add other things onto that would be a distraction onto which he came to declare that ultimately he himself was enough. As we head towards Easter with Christ, right, in these seven weeks, and I know a lot of you are like, I didn't even think about Easter yet, and I totally understand. Easter seems like a distant time, 
But as we think and try to take intentionally this time of Easter and recognizing the significance of Christ in that time, this is my prayer that we would, we would approach this as a people this way, intended, that we would intentionally unprotect. What does that mean? Intentionally unprotect, release ways, or give up horses and chariots that you have defended yourself and tried to satisfy your neurotic need for security and significance on your own. Now, I know some of you, that means something too, and some of you are like, boy, I don't understand a word you just said, right? Like, there's a lot of neurotic and things in there, right? So what does that mean? What does it mean to, to, in, to intentionally give up ways that we defend ourselves? Well, let me tell you ways that I try to build my kingdom and try ways I defend it. I've been really confronted uh, by Jesus. I'm in step study with CR. It's been a really beautiful experience for me to confront something that I didn't even realize how big of a deal it was in my life. Money. Man. I, I learned to trust Jesus in following him with my own personal finances. Then I got married. And it was a little harder because then you're like, oh, man, provider, all that kind of stuff. Then I had kids. And I'm a wreck. I can't tell you how much of my life is worried about my financial future. I don't want to tell you how much of my life is worried by financial future. And so what I think is, is so then I'll see, go online, I'll check the account, da-da-da-da, and like, okay, good day. All right, we didn't have that much go out, and we had good things come in, and so then there's happiness. There's a sense of peace. There's a sense of control. There's a sense of it's going to be okay. The next day, Trader Joe's hits, and you're like, babe, what are you buying there? You know, and you're beginning to ask questions. I mean, do our kids really need to eat every day, right? Like... <laughs> Can we work this? Isn't there some tribe in some history somewhere that didn't need food? Let's do that, right? But there's this sense of my, my sense of everything would rise and fall. Do I have enough? Do I have enough? Something I've had to do as a discipline is something a lot of you probably think is absolutely ridiculous, and it probably is. I'm only allowed to check my bank account once a week. And you say, that sounds a lot like you're a child. To which I would say, you're right. As a child, I, I have not grown to trust in my father very much in this way. And so I now can only look at my finances once a week is, is my rule. Because why? I have to get my hands off. I got to let the war horses out of the stables. I got to get rid of some chariots. Because, because while, while it's so easy that we want to gain Christ... We become so allergic to losing anything. I wonder, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? As we're, we're hoarding all of our kingdom and saying we don't, we don't have room for Christ. Mind and soul is so preoccupied. Another thing, this is something we talked about in Step Study this last week. I've had to do because it's not just once a week because then I can think about it all the time, right? And so then I find myself thinking about finances and then the future and, and how to protect and make sure kids and how long until they go to college and, again, do they really need college? Is that a construct? Of, right, all those things go through my mind. I realize my mind spins and spins and spins and it prays so little. And so this upcoming Easter, I told my wife the other day, I said, this is... My intentional unprotection this Easter is to give up my own mind devices of always trying to figure out how we can do it and to say, when my mind spins, let it spin to prayer. 
Some of you say, clearly, dude, you've got issues, and think maybe you don't, and if you don't, more power to you. But here's a way to, to find out where maybe you're building your own kingdoms. Ask yourself, where do your unconscious thoughts go? When your mind drifts and you're in a shower, you're driving to work, you're whatever, you're at a boring class in school, like where does your mind begin to land? Because oftentimes where our mind begins to land is, is that kingdom that we're trying to build and defend, find safety and significance in that space. Another way to ask, ask yourself or someone you love, say, hey, what do you think that I fear the most? Where your fear is, is often where your kingdom lies. Some of you are identity and image. That's just really big to you. And it's probably big to all of us, but, but some people have unique, like, stuck in, in the way you look physically and in the way you come across, whether online or in person or at work, and, and the sense of image and how you come across is really important. How, how about Easter? What if you Easter, let, let that out of the stable. What if you, for these next seven weeks, says, I'm not going to defend myself once. You say, well, if my boss comes in and says this, 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 and this. That's an opportunity. Take it. Let it go. Don't defend. Take, take an entire time away from complaining. A lot of you are really hard workers, and the way that you kind of get building up that you're something special is, is, is you complain in order to show how much you're doing, how much you're facing. What if you took seven weeks saying, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to complain. I'm going to take these weeks away from that. Some of you are fighting grief, and you're running so fast, and you're so scared it's going to catch up to you. Why don't you let it catch you this Easter? Why don't you say, I know I'm self-protecting here. I'm defending myself because I don't want to feel how bad this hurts, how bad this loss hurts, how bad this situation hurts, how bad this relationship hurts. Maybe you've been keeping your feet going so much. It's out of self-protection. I would say unprotect. There are seasons in the Christian life that each of us go through, and if you've been with Jesus long, you know there are seasons where it's like, you wake up and he seems like he's everywhere. And then days you wake up and it seems like he's gone. Many people in this room are going through a time of spiritual confusion. And you're not supposed to is what you think. And you're a community group leader. And you're, you've known Jesus for this long and you teach Sunday school. Like, how could you be confused? How could you have doubts? How could you be angry at God? The very easiest thing to do when we're going through spiritually difficult seasons is to isolate, put boundaries on it. Don't let anyone see it. Don't share that in small group. Maybe this Easter, you can unprotect. You can make the awkward phone call to a friend and say, hey, I don't know where Jesus went, and that scares me. And I'm in a time of darkness, and I need help. A buddy of mine talking about these seasons says it's not usually a book that gets you through those times. It's not usually um, information, but relationship that we walk through with others and with Christ. How do we go towards Easter? We reduce our attachment to our own pet devices for finding security and significance on our own. And I would say... Don't let that be a decent idea. Like, yeah, that could be it. This takes intentionality. This moment where Jesus rides in is sculpted. And I would say to, to reduce the sense of trying to find your own strength in yourself 
it takes intentionality. And I challenge us all to partake in that as we approach Easter. Okay, finally, foolish king. Lastly, we have the weeping king. This is the awkward part in the text. And then, like, literally all these people are coming to worship. It's the biggest worship scene we see in the life of Christ um, on earth, uh, except for when the angels did the praising thing in the Christmas or whatever. And then, so then here, this is the, the next biggest moment. And they're having this great scene. And it says Jesus is going through, and he's weeping. Two Greek words for weeping. One is used at the death of Lazarus. There's only two times that Jesus is seen weeping. One's at the death of Lazarus. That weeping is a more controlled weeping, a more grieved but silent, maybe go like a little, little tear action but not losing it. This weeping that is described here is wailing. These people are lifting these palm branches, hanging out, and Jesus is on the donkey wailing and weeping out loud. Why? Right? I had a professor who asked the question. He said, what makes you pound the table and weep? And he's trying to say, what are you most passionate about? What makes you pound the table and weep? This is, we see here, what makes Jesus pound the table and weep. Did he wish more people had showed up? Did he wish these people had, had gotten the word out sooner? Did he wish they had some stanzas to the song? Did he wish that they had all sinned a whole lot less the week before in, in, in sacred ceremony of this time. Why does Christ weep in this moment? It says it right here. Jesus says it in the text. What makes Jesus weep? If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Jesus wept out loud. The only type of this weeping that we have on record in history of Christ. And he wept for the true peace of his people. I read that this week and I just, there's so many things that I think I do that probably make Jesus weep. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, that probably made Jesus weep right there. You know, that kind of thing. That, but to think, what really makes Jesus weep is a longing for us to be at peace. This word peace is the word arene. It's the same word he's going to use all week. It's the same word used by the angels in that first worship service to announce his birth in Luke 2. What has come? Peace has come. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Peace I leave with you. He says this on Thursday in just a few short days. My peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. This when he first sees his disciples, the disciples who have scattered and betrayed and left and everything. And he comes in after this time, after the resurrected Christ, the first time he sees them and he has a message. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Because peace was with them. Peace just came in the door. We've been looking through this uh, Romans 8. Pastor Mark's been walking us through this. Paul defines the Christian life. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Jesus longs for. This is why he has come to battle. This is why he's been willing to play the part of the fool. 
This is why Christ weeps, that he might bring peace to his people. How to ride with Christ. And Paul writes this in his letters. How to ride to war with Christ this Easter. Desperately seek true peace in Christ and war against the false securities that will crumble soon anyway. This week I asked the staff, and I, I didn't give them any context and uh, didn't give them all each other's answers or anything. I said, I want you to text me what is it like to be with Jesus? What is it like for you when you are in the presence of Christ? And I didn't tell them anything else, preaching anything. Just said, what's it like? And I said, text me so no one's comparing notes. Just text me, what is it like? Because these are people, the pastors and staff on church that, that you all love, that I love, that, that have been with Christ so long. And I'm like, well, well tell us what he's like in your experience. Because I had a theory. And I didn't know if it was going to be right. But I sort of feel like it did, so I feel good about myself. But um, this is, my thought was, I bet you what people are going to say is right around this arena, that where Christ is, so comes his true peace. Here are the words, unedited, that I got from the staff. Purposefulness and deep calm. Safety. Overwhelming sense of humble gratitude. Relief and sanctuary, small and important, safe, naked and unafraid, known and loved, complete peace. That's why he came. That's why he went to war, that he might be the complete peace of his people. Let the weeping Christ inform us. He longs. To bring you peace without devices, without extra warriors, without proof of riches, without the accomplishment of worldly victory, but to ride to you with true peace that he is enough. So as we head towards Easter, here's our prayer, our motivation is simply to be with him, to see him. This, uh, the book that we put together is just a chance to be with him. It's less of how to get Jesus into our lives in all these ways and change everything in our lives. That's good stuff. But this question is, how do we spend time with Jesus? On Wednesdays, that's what we're going to do. Just going to be with what, the, what Easter means and ponder Christ and be in his presence. Simply to be with him because seeing Jesus, I mean, really seeing Jesus is to realize what the Easter beauty is all about and to realize the best thing about Easter is that Jesus is not dead now. If you would rise, I'm going to give you it's one of the things we do at Collingswood. It's, it's meant a lot to me. and uh, really believe theologically in a worship service we are singing to one another believe there's participation, but also believe that uh, we want to just give you a gift. And so this, this blessing is for you to receive, not to do anything about, but just simply receive this blessing as we go. May we ride to Easter together with Christ. May he 
make war in us for true peace. May we intentionally unprotect from our own devices that we falsely use to find our homes and our own identity, image, comfort, or pride. May we journey to Easter with our living, resurrected, dead, no longer Jesus. May we speak with the deep assurance of Paul who says he is our peace and with the open-hearted pilgrims who approached Philip, sir, we would see Jesus. It's an honor to travel with you to Easter together. We are dismissed.